Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show we return to Elm Street and take a look at a new book all about Freddy Krueger's legacy. Mark Ryle reviews the new Edgar Wright movie Last Night in Soho. And we chat about all the week's television that you won't want to miss. Plus your chance to win copies of Space Jam Legacy on DVD. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty. Or you can email me, screentime at Newstalk.com. Good weekend to you all this Halloween weekend and I hope you're getting festive. Is it festive? Can you be festive? Like festive is actually any kind of festival, isn't it? It's not necessarily Christmas. Hope you're having a nice Halloween weekend. And it's with Halloween I want to start. I gave out my Twitter handle there. Don't worry, I'm going to get to movies and TV in a second, but this this is very much related. You know, I use Twitter. It's a useful tool for talking about movies, staying in touch with some of your pals, you know, funny things you might have seen. I'm not in the cesspool end of Twitter so I don't get involved and have no cause to be in any rows or arguments or the nasty stuff that is everywhere on it. I I found a nice little home with a little community of screen time listeners and some other pals in the media and it works fine for me and mostly it's self-promotion for my show and my various media bits and I put up tweets of videos of me and Ray Liotta or last week News Talk put up Ruth Nega and it works and it's great and, and it's all good. That said, last Friday on a whim I dropped my youngest son off at creche and they were having a Halloween dress up and he was in a pumpkin costume and I tweeted this picture and my youngest son, all my children have orange hair and he looked pretty sweet, if I may say so myself. And the amount of traction that got, it left interviews with Will Ferrell and Ricky Gervais in the halfpenny place. I, I literally stopped looking at my phone at one point because it was just constant nice responses to it and likes. And there's something in that, you know. I, I think I'm going to have to put my kids out front and centre more, maybe get them to do the heavy lifting on all this. But anyway, just just an exercise in social media for you there. Uh, pictures of kids in pumpkin costumes trump any celebrity star I may be interviewing. Lesson learned. More pictures of adorable kids to follow, possibly. Now, in TV, this week, I was delighted to be watching this. Thank you all for coming. Oh, I want to make a toast to friendship. Cheers, cheers. Cheers, Larry. You can't look me in the eye and toast. What does it do? You're saying, hello, I see you. I connect with you. Hello, I see you. I acknowledge you. I connect with you. I think you're rude. You see how stupid yeah. it is? What happened to the movie where you were playing me? Oh, the God. was based on me? Yeah, it went away. It's interesting because they were very specific. They loved the performance. They hated the character. The word that kept reappearing was repugnant. Repugnant. Hey, it's me. Where are you? There's traffic. I can't sit in traffic. I'm, I'm too smart. What? You have to have done something stupid to be in traffic. I don't belong here. Stop gossiping about my towels. If your towels weren't so ratty, I wouldn't have to talk about them. You want to talk about me? Fine. You want to talk about my relationships? Fine. Do not discuss my towels. You never call me. You hate people. I hate people individually, but I love mankind. Oh, you do. 
Yes, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David. That's a clip from, well, a, a selection of, of pieces from season 11 of Curb Your Enthusiasm is here. And, you know, on Monday, I was having a busy day. It was a strange bank holiday Monday. And about three o'clock in the afternoon, I realised that Curb Your Enthusiasm was back. And I was overjoyed. And it, it's kind of funny for a show that's funny, but, but, you know, dark and full of a miserable people, generally rich, miserable people. It's funny how comforting it is, or certainly to me. And I saw Larry David's ball dome reappear and I was just happy. And season 11 got off to a great start on Monday evening on Sky Comedy. They only seem to be dropping every week. Larry David is back. This time, the thing that's overarching the season seems to be he's going to go into bed with Netflix, which is interesting because HBO actually produced the show. But for part of the plot this season, he's going to do a Young Larry series all about him. So he's pitching a show to Netflix all about his young life and and growing up as a stand-up and working as a limo driver. And then all sorts of classic Curb Your Enthusiasm was in there. You had him walking into a glass door and Lucy Liu playing herself as his girlfriend decides she doesn't want to go out with him anymore because she thinks he's getting old and he's disgusted by this you have him attending the living funeral of Albert Brooks Albert Brooks the director is playing himself and he has one of these living funerals where people go along and celebrate him while he's still alive and Larry is the chief celebrant and he's just having no part of it and ridicules him mercilessly. There was all sorts of other things going on. Jeff is back. Susie is back. If you're a Curb Your Enthusiasm fan, I'm preaching to the converted. If you're not, you're just not. Some people don't like Larry David. I absolutely adore him playing, I think, a pretty loosely fictionalised version of himself. And to me, Curb Your Enthusiasm is what they couldn't do on Seinfeld in a way, you know, and no one does it like Larry. And I'm just so happy he's back. Another show I watched this week was also on Monday on BBC One called Outlaws. You may have heard about this. This is from the pen of Stephen Merchant, he of Office Fane, and he's also in it. And it's a gang of seven people who are doing community service. And Stephen Merchant got the idea for this because his mother used to work in the probation service and the idea of people doing community service together. And it's seven disparate people who are placed in community service. You have a young girl, you have an older businessman, you have Stephen Merchant. We learn a bit about their backstories through the community service that they're involved in. But I suppose what really piqued my interest is that Christopher Walken, is one of the guys doing community service and he's trying to reconnect with his daughter who he doesn't get on with anymore. He's playing Christopher Walken. He's this kind of smart aleck, grizzled ex-con recently released from prison and he's an ankle tag and he seems to, his daughter refers to him as a lying, thieving, selfish old bastard and he's trying to redeem himself. He's just being Christopher Walken. I mean, he was straight out of kind of the deer hunter but I'm absolutely fine with that. I mean, anything Christopher Walken is. He can, you know, read the Cornetto ads for all I care but it's it's a pretty funny yet also gritty drama uh, with interesting backstories to all the characters who are in commu- doing their community service. So I'm looking forward to seeing the next one. It's not going to change your life, but so far so good. It's also taking place in Bristol, which gives it a slightly different sheen that it's not London. I, I like shows in the UK that take place in like Manchester or Liverpool or Bristol or whatever. So, so far so good with Outlaws and certainly great to see Christopher Walken. I think the first time he's ever been in a English or a non-American TV show. I may be wrong. It happens from time to time, but that's my understanding. 
Let me know if you might have watched Outlaws or Curb Your Enthusiasm Season 11. I also watched Dave Chappelle's recent Netflix special, Closer. And uh, I'm not going to talk to you about it now because I don't actually know what to say about it as of yet. I'm still making up my mind what I actually think of it. So more of that in another week. I don't want to get into it right now. Sounds intriguing, eh? I'm not sure if it is, but anyway, more of that at another date. And then quickly, I want to tell you that we have some copies of Space Jam, A New Legacy to give away, which was in cinemas earlier this year. Stars LeBron James. It's a transformational journey in a manic mashup of two worlds that reveals how far some parents will go to connect with their kids when LeBron and his young son, Dom, are trapped in a digital space by a rogue AI. LeBron must get them home safe by leading Bugs, yes, Bugs Bunny, Lola Bunny, and the whole gang of undisciplined Lulee tunes to a victory over AI's digitised champions on the court, a basketball court. And it's a, a kind of reimagining of the original Space Jam movie of sorts. As I say, we have a number of copies to give away. And I should say it's currently available on 4KUD, Blu-ray and DVD here in Ireland from the 22nd of October. And it's available as a digital download. Now, if you would like to win a copy on DVD, people still have them, you know. I know a lot of people who still swear by their DVDs. If you'd like to win a copy, simply text the word JAM, followed by your name, to 53106. Or you can email us, screentime at newstalk.com. So that's the word jam, followed by your name to 53106. Or email us, screentime at newstalk.com. And the wonderful erstwhile Anne Marie Kane will pick a winner. Up next, Mark Ryle on the week's new releases. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now we turn to the week's new releases. That's new releases in the cinema. I'm delighted to be joined by our resident critic, Mark Royal. Mark, how are you? I'm good, John. How are you? Very well. This week, we're looking at Last Night in Soho from Edgar Wright and the movie Passing, which we talked to Ruth Nega about last week, but obviously we wanted your take on it because it's also in cinemas from this Friday. So let's begin with Last Night in Soho, a horror kind of in the swinging 60s or something like that. I haven't seen this, I should say. Yeah, unfortunately I have. Um, it's written and produced and directed by Edgar Wright, who most most listeners will be familiar with. Um and Remind I think, people the type of things he's doing. Oh, Shaun of the Dead, um, Hot Fuzz, mm. uh, 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 Baby Driver was, I think, was his previous one. Yeah. He's, done, he's done lots of stuff. Um, um, I think this one, like a lot of his stuff, in my opinion, I always thought I liked him as a director, but I think I only think that I like him as a director. Um, a lot of his stuff, it's a good idea, poorly executed. It's it, this is last night in Soho. It's a movie of two halves, and I'm really, really sorry to say that one half is is terrible. Okay, can I interject for a second? Interject did away. You, did you like Baby Driver? Um, up to a point, it has the same problem in that it's a really, really good setup. But when he comes to walking at home, he just he drops the ball, and I think he's done that on more than one occasion okay. for me. The I'm last... trying to be fair. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. You, you strive to be egalitarian. The last I thing I saw was his Sparks documentary, The Sparks Brothers, which was yeah, absolutely incredible. Now, that was a documentary. I yeah. did enjoy Baby Driver. But anyway, let's get to Last Night in Soho. So what's going on here is uh, Thomasin McKenzie, who you will no doubt recognize from Jojo Rabbit. Um, she plays Eloise. She's a, a 60s obsessed student of fashion. 
and she's just landed a place in a prestigious London fashion college. So she moves into this bedsit that's run by Diana Rigg in what was sadly her final film role. That's right, yeah. And um, when she's when she's after she's moved into this bedsit, she she begins to have these increasingly lucid dreams that um, transport her back to swinging London in the 1960s and into the psyche of Anya Taylor-Joy's Sandy, who's an aspiring nightclub singer. And uh, Sandy gets pushed into uh, vice by her her nasty pimp manager boyfriend, who's played by Matt Smith. And then uh, things get progressively darker from there. And it becomes uh, horror in the true sense of the phrase, as in like ghostly things appear and... It does, yeah. It's it's probably Edgar Wright's first uh, hard non-comedy. Most of mm. his stuff there's a there's humorous elements in it. This is not um, funny at all. Um, and it's to be fair, I'm going to be fair, right? I'd say the first hour is is pretty good. Um, it's a solid, stylish psychological drama with horror elements, mm-hmm. and. It, it it looks gorgeous that it's got that 60s london aesthetic mm. it, it's all glossy rain soaked streets and and pink neon it looks great and it's also the first hour that is it's relatively tame for edgar Wright. um and he's not doing that 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 try hard hyperactive camera firing off in all directions at once thing and um what he is really really good at is the needle drop he's very good at curating music and the soundtrack that he's 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 pulled together here is fantastic and what he was probably going for on paper was a sort of a cross between Roman Polanski's Repulsion and Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street. But um, it kind of turns out into a more Scooby-Doo uh, thing than, <laughs> than either of those. Um, that's that's the first hour. And as I say, this, this, the back end, it gets, it gets less psychological and it gets more flat out uh, giallo slasher horror. And it, the second half for me, it was a complete car crash, mm. um, and it's not just a car crash. Edgar Wright isn't happy with any old car crash. He gets back into the car and he reverses it and he plows it into the, his movie into the wall over and over again, and he makes so many poor choices in the the, the second half of this movie. It's it's simply staggering, and I can only presume that these these poor choices are deliberate. Mm. Now, let me ask you a couple of things, because I say I haven't seen it. My friend and colleague, uh, Serena, was reviewing it on our movie slot on the hard shoulder this week. And she said you cared about the characters. That's what made it work for her because she's not a fan of horror. But I'm sensing by the end of it, you didn't care because he'd torn it apart too much. I think I think there might be something wrong with me, John. I really do. Um, (laughs) I will say that's a given. But, you know, let's stick with the movie. On the characters. Right. Um, uh, Thomas and Mackenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy, they do their very, very best with the, the shoddy script. But mm. at a certain point, you just have no other choice but to just feel sorry for them, for what they're, 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 you know, they, they're given. Mm. Um, I'd say Taylor-Joy comes out of it with slightly less egg on her face. But um, the thing about Mackenzie's Eloise, who's the, the main character, she's, she's, I, she, I found her particularly poorly written, and she's mm. just not credible. Um, and that is a recurring problem throughout. She has this. Also, she's also got this goody goody friend played by um, a young fellow called Michael uh, Ajayo, and he's just too much of a boy scout for a character living in London in 2021. Um, and the whole thing has this sort of young adult ad- ad- adap- adaptation feel to the script. Yeah. That first of all, it isn't a good fit for Edgar Wright, and secondly, 
it's not in keeping with the horror elements, which are really, really blatant in the second half of the movie. And tell me this, I was delighted to see Terrence Stamp because I, you know, you watch him yeah. on anything. I just love the guy. And I, from the trailer, you know, she says to him, uh, I know what you did. And he's like, I've done a lot of things. What are you referring to? Like, was he good in it? Um, he's better than the material. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think, um, I, so I came away thinking was that I think Edgar Wright would be a really good Doctor Who showrunner. And that's not meant as a compliment. Um, because <laughs> no, I didn't take it as such. Occasionally you'll come across something about Doctor Who and you think, oh, you know, I have to give that another chance. Um, but then you watch a bit of it and, and you're, you're reminded that it's a, it's a, it's fairly hokey and it is a, a kid's show at the end of the day, you know. Um, he's Steady seen, now, a lot of Doctor Who fans out there. Well, I mean. <laughs> you don't care. I don't know what you want me to say about that. Just own it. Yeah, um, fair enough. Yeah, we don't want he, you to lie. He, he's a. Uh, like Edgar Wright, he's, I don't think he's ever really moved on from making those homemade Sam Raimi and George A. Romero knockoffs with a video camera. Mm. He just has a bigger budget now. Um, but, you know, before some of those, those if, you know, talent borrows and genius steals, and he was stealing stuff, but he was doing it in a sort of an, an inventive and subversive way. Um, and he would twist it and that kind of made fun of the cliches that we had become used to in those kind of movies. Mm-hmm. But I think with Last Night in Soho, he's just... He's just falling back into cliche without trying to do anything clever with yeah. those cliches. Okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that because I like the premise, the idea of setting a horror movie in the swinging 60s and, you know, yeah. in this, and maybe that, you know, I know it's some metaphor for the underbelly of how the 60s actually was, but it's none of those things, it sounds like to me. So what would you say stars wise? Um, I'm going to give it two um, because, as you say, it, it's a. He, I think he's great with the with the setup, but uh, mm. the payoff is just it's it's very very poor. Okay, okay. Unfortunately. Well, listen, we better take a clip of that slightly poor movie. What's your poison, Miss? I'm not here to drink, actually. I want to speak to the owner. The owner's not in tonight. What do you want to speak to them about? I want to be your new headline act. Where have you played before? Nowhere. Who starts at the Café de Paris? Me. I can take your name if you want. But maybe you should speak to Jack in the meantime. Jack? Over there? The guy standing next to Silla Black. He manages a lot of girls. That's a clip there from Last Night in Soho, which is in cinemas from this Friday. Mark Ryle gave it a pretty average, well, below average too, but he didn't like it. And we want him to tell us the truth. We want him to be himself. So, Mark, Passing is the other movie that's getting a cinema release this week. Now, I interviewed Ruth Negan. We talked a long time about the movie last week. I really enjoyed this. Uh, what did you make of Passing, which is in cinemas this week and is getting a release on Netflix on the 10th of November? That's right, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, it's Rebecca Hall's um, directorial debut. It's it's an incredibly confident uh, first effort. Mm. And um, it, yeah, it's based on uh, Nella Larson's 1929 novel. Um, it is set in 1920s New York. Um, uh, Tessa Thompson is Irene. She's a well-to-do homemaker with a well-to-do doctor husband. And she lives in a sprawling brownstone in, in Harlem. And then one day Irene runs into Ruth Negga's Claire, who's a friend from the old neighborhood, and she hasn't seen her in 12 years. And to Irene's surprise and slight horror, Claire has spent the last 12 years passing as white. 
And um, Claire is also married to a wealthy banker, but her husband, who's played by Alexander Skarsgård, he's a nasty, unapologetic bigot, um, and he has no idea about Claire's heritage. So um, Irene does her best to keep her her comfy home life separate from Claire, but she slowly starts to, I suppose, invade her space. Yeah. And we should say passing is this, well, I guess you call it phenomena in the 20s, 30s. Well, I don't really know how long it went on for, but, you know, people of African-American heritage passing as white in certain situations to get a better roll of the dice, so to speak. So you said it was fantastic. I'm awfully, well, I think you said it was fantastic. Maybe I'm dreaming, but you certainly liked it a lot, which I'm delighted to hear you say, because I thought it was a fine piece of movie making. It is, yeah, absolutely, yeah. As I said, for a first effort, it's it's just <laughs> remarkable. Um, Rebecca Hall's direction, it's, it's it's astonishingly confident and sure-footed. And um, the the thing that I really liked about it is that um, Hall doesn't she doesn't spell out every last detail for us, mm. and she's happy enough to leave some things um, pleasantly ambiguous, and that kind of allows room for for debate and discussion. Um, and I, as you would imagine, there is some very frank dialogue here on race that makes for uncomfortable viewing. But I, I don't mind being a little bit uncomfortable about stuff like that. Particularly from uh, Alexander Skarsgård. He's horrible in it, but it's it's punching the stomach stuff. It is. Yeah, he's not, he's worse than the I have black friends guy. He's yeah, I think he said, like, I, I know people who know them, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's nasty. But even no, just stuff between, um, you know, um, Bruce Negger and Tessa Thompson, just conversations they're they're, they're as you would expect, you know, um, we have and to talk about the, the, the Negger and Thompson. Really. They're absolutely brilliant in it. Uh, and, and maybe last week I didn't make as much as Tessa Thompson, but she's brilliant in it as well. And a big part of the movie is, you know, Claire invading, or you know, her world and her comfortable existence. Yeah, yeah, she's just incredible. She it's so unshowy even that like she does this if the, the way she kind of turns her head away when her husband is trying to to kiss her. Mm. Um it's I think she is the more Thompson is the more resta- restrained and internal if you like of the two and Nega then has this almost Blanche Dubois streetcar quality to her. Yeah, and she's brilliant though, isn't she as well? Absolutely. Don't you agree? Uh, I thought she was yeah, yeah. I think there may be talk of Oscars, you know. There, well, I mean, it's it's that that would be well deserved if there is. Um, Andre Holland as the husband is is fantastic as well. It's very he, again, it's a very um, uh, quiet and unshowy performance. The only yeah. kind of misstep for me was uh, Bill Camp. He seemed a bit out of the place. He was the author engaging in a bit of uh, exotic cultural tourism. I thought he was slightly out of out of place. Yeah, I know what you're saying there. The character didn't seem even necessary to what was going on in the story, you know. And I thought it looked beautiful as well, black and white, maybe for obvious reasons, but also just to give that 1920s Harlem feel. I just thought it was beautiful and lush looking. Gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. I think the the, the decision to shoot it in black and white, it, it almost exaggerates the skin tones mm. of the characters, which yeah. of course is such an integral part of the story. Um, but I think what what it this is, it's it's a melodrama without the melodrama, uh, for want of a better way of saying it. Back in the 1950s, this would have been disparagingly described as a woman's picture. Mm. And there's definite, definite shades of, of Douglas Sirk here, um, but without the, the heightened emotion and, and, of course, the technicolor. Um, and Sirk's uh, imitation of life dealt with passing as well. Um, 
also that I know you love it when I talk about um, uh, ratios, the the academy ratio, the boxing academy ratio. That's also, I think, definitely a nod back to to, to Cirque as well. Wow, a melodrama without the melodrama. That's impressive. Yeah. That's impressive. You see. Yeah. See that, Very folks. Good. You know. <laughs> Amazing. So listen, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed that so much. What would you say stars wise for passing? I'm going to give it a four. Excellent. Well, I think I will as well. Uh, That's two fours for passing. And sorry, one other thing I wanted to say to you. Mm -hmm. I love the scene where they kind of recognize each other for the first time. It was so well done and so tense and slow and let us almost zone it. It's one of those scenes where you get the impression we're just not eavesdropping, but, you know, watching something that's happening in real life and it's up to us whether we watch it or not. It was so organic. I thought it was brilliant. It is. It's, it's mesmerizing. There's mm. a, I know the scene that you're talking about, it. There's, there's a lot going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, that's four for both Mark and myself for passing, which is in cinemas. I think it's a pretty uh, cinema... What's what's the adjective? Cinematic. There you go. My words were failing me. It's a pretty cinematic movie. So I would say it's well worth seeing in the cinemas from this Friday. It will be available on Netflix from the 10th of November if you choose to watch it at home. Mark, as Sting said in Englishman in New York, be yourself no matter what they say. Thank you very much. Mm. (laughs) Talk to you next week. Okay, bye. (laughs) Up next, for the weekend that's in it, we're back on Elm Street. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now it's Halloween weekend, so I wanted to do something spooky or something in that general genre. And I thought, let's not do our favourite horror movies of all time. And then a book came across my guest from an old friend of the show, Wayne Byrne, who we spoke to last year about his book on Burt Reynolds. Previously, he's written books about the famous cinematographer, Nick McLean, and his latest book, It's called Welcome to Elm Street, Inside the Film and Television Nightmares, which is obviously all about Freddy Krueger and the litany of movies that followed and indeed the TV show. Wayne, how are you? John, how's it going? Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. So look, you know, I was a child of the 80s, so I remember... Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street I kind of loved it when I saw it too young as a kid which I think you did as well and then lots of other movies came and I kind of lost track a bit of it is is obviously you think it's worthy of a book uh, the whole franchise absolutely yeah and I mean it's it's plenty written about already there's documentaries there's books there's websites devoted to it but my angle was slightly different you know um, for me one of the things that captivated me about the franchise in general over the years was there's a lot of great teams in there you know and some kind of deep subtexts and I always found that it it's as a horror film it reaches I guess the soul a bit more than others because you know what it's talking about are some very serious issues you know you're talking about things like you know abuse um alcoholism addiction you know teen suicide all that kind of thing so there, there are issues which are very pertinent and important and it already have been discussed in cinema and i think sometimes those things get a bit overlooked when people are looking back on the series and kind of celebrating it as a horror movie because of course it's a great horror film on the surface you know freddy krueger's a wonderful you know horror logo he's kind of the modern day dracula or frankenstein but when you dig down deep into these films, there's a lot going on there. And that's really what I wanted to dig into with, with the book. And it started out really wanting to discuss the TV show, which is very underrated as well and very little spoken about Freddy's Nightmares. 
So I kind of went from kind of looking at that, then looking at the teams in all the films, and there's a lot going on in there. And, you know, Wes Craven was celebrated as a, a very high inte- high intelligence horror director. So you know that the stuff that's in there is placed there, you know, on purpose. You know, it's it's not mm. it's not just me reading into things. And several sp- people I spoke to who collaborated on the film said, yes, you know, those are things that Wes put in there, but sometimes they do get overlooked. So give, just give me an example, because that's fascinating, because I think in a way the movies suffer a bit from, you know, the Rambo syndrome, where if you look at First Blood, the movie, I always think that's a great film that kind of got torn to shreds because of these god awful sequels that came afterwards. And, and maybe something similar. I don't know if you'd agree, but in a way, A Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, it became such a big thing. People lost touch of it. So in terms of the themes that are going on there, like, like, like let's start with with freddie himself like you think there's more to him than just a a cartoonish kind of horror creation oh absolutely and you see what happened is the films became so big you know and popular by nightmare on elm street 3 that Mm. they kind of inevitably went down that route because freddie became the star of the show he became you know this anti-hero to the teens of the 1980s you know i remember when i was a kid you know, you, you could buy Freddy Krueger toys in the local pound shop. Yeah. Donald's here in Ace, you could, you could get you know, <laughs> Fre- Fre- Freddy's lunchbox and, you know, Freddy water pistols. So, you know, you, when you think about it, he's a, he's a child killer. And originally, yeah. in, the, in the original script, he was also a child abuser. So it's, it's gas to think that here's this horrendous man being sold to children as this kind of movie hero. You know what I mean? So, but by the time you got to part three and four, he, were, he was like, you know, the James Bond of horror icons because he was making quips and making jokes as he was about to slaughter people you know so he was very witty and ironic by the time it got to those mid-80s films but the first two films i always find are particularly creepy in their in their tone they're a bit more sincere in their addressing of the teams particularly the first one which was wes craven's one you know but um you know each of the films deals with those teams on some level it just depends on the director who's working with them, you know, in terms of how how far they are from the surface. Some of the yeah. films you do have to mine a bit bit further for, you know, but when you're dealing with Wes Craven, who directed the first film and he wrote the story of the third one. So those are kind of more immediate in terms of they're, they're a bit more, there's a lot more to them just on an, an mm. intellectual level, you know. And to my memory of them now, I haven't seen them in a, in a long time, but the the rhyme that the kids do one, two, three, Fred, that yeah. Freddie's going to get you three, four. I mean, I remember the first one and I was probably too young to watch it. Like a lot of stuff that happened in the eighties, but it was petrifying. Like it's a really scary movie. That first one in particular, to my memory. It is. And I kind of went a bit backwards because I, I started off, as I say, with, with, with Freddie's nightmares, you know, it was on sky one when sky one kind of kicked off in around 1990, 91. So that was kind of my first exposure to it. And then, I went into parts three and four renting on videotape, you know, when I was hmm. very young, you know, so <laughs> I have, um, I have to thank my, my parents for being lenient enough to let me watch Freddy when I was that age. Cause look what it resulted in. But, you know, I kind of went backwards from there. So I discovered the first one then, you know, a couple of years later and I was kind of taken aback because it was, as I say, it's a lot more serious in its presentation, you know, than those later sequels. So you're, hmm. you, you started off on this kind of, you know, pop culture, funny kind of caricature of, of Freddy Krueger in parts four and five and whatever. But then you go back to the originals and he is a dastardly evil being, you know, or entity, you know, whatever it is. And yeah, the, the films, you know, it, over time I came to love the first one 
for that reason you know and that's i think really the reason that kind of it's the impetus behind the book you know it's those teams that are laid down by wes craven and as i say he's the kind of director where he puts those kind of elements in his films and it, it, it just allows for me as a kind of a film historian or a film critic to kind of there's more to chew on you know as a writer you know and when i came to some of the films that i was writing about in the in the book there wasn't as much there you know when you get to freddy versus jason there's not a whole lot there (laughs) yeah oh i'm gonna ask you about the the various movies in a minute but the tv show so this was freddy's nightmares and it was him almost doing like the narrator from the twilight zone he was kind of this character who sat by the fireplace and but he would also occasionally show up in the stories just remind people what was going on in those that's right he was kind of like you know rod serling from the twilight zone for the 80s you know he kind of he introduced each episode the premise of the show was it's set in the town of springwood and it's about kind of freddie's lasting influence on the town and you know how it affected the town's parents because you know his whole thing is modus operandi he was killing the kids of the parents who burned him alive after his misdeeds years ago. So there's this whole, if you look at the parents in in the Elm Street world, the the TV series and the film series, they're damaged. You know, as I say, they're kind of, they're, they're alcoholics, they're divorced, they're, they're just broken people. And the show kind of goes into how that affects the kids you know, in kind of a metaphorical sense, because really it's Freddy who's manipulating the whole thing. He's not often mm-hmm. in the show. He he kind of bounces around, you know, he comes in halfway through an episode, kind of gives a little funny line or two or explains some exposition and he introduces the episode. But the, the episodes are really about the parents and their relationships with their kids and, you know, all the damage that's been done to the town because of the, the, the population's reaction to Freddy's crimes, you know, which and I do they... Do they stand up still? Are they good pieces of TV? Oh, they're, you know, when you look at them now, they have that kind of 80s soap opera look to them. You know, they, were, they, they weren't particularly well funded, surprisingly, given the, you know, how, how popular the TV or the, the film franchise was. But, you know, they, they had some amazing horror directors and horror writers working on the show. So I think the, the stories and the ideas stand up still and i do have a soft spot for that kind of 80s aesthetic anyway you know the, yeah. the music and the look they're very colorful they're very bright you know which was always what i loved about elm street was it presented this kind of bright sunny middle class idyllic american world and underneath that underneath the surface and behind picket fence lurks freddie and all his misdeeds and you know all the other issues that the parents have so i love that contrast of the bright bright sunny world and then the dark forces lurking underneath you know so is you know just as you're talking there is freddie some dark metaphor for the underbelly of american life was it conceived that way do you think in wes craven or is it just a happy dovetailing of how it all came together yeah no i think he does represent some kind of dark side of america kind of post 60s i know i remember talking to robert england and he was telling me you know he had conversations with wes craven about and we should say robert england played freddie Absolutely. Yeah. I, I spoke to Robert for the book and he was terrific, you know, and he, he met me on that level with all these teams. He's, he's a, he's a brilliant, brilliant raconteur and intellectual. And he loved talking about those teams and digging into, you know, beneath the surface of these, these films. But yeah, like they, they looked at these as kind of, you know, the damage, the damage that was done in the sixties and the seventies on a social cultural and political level, you know, and how that affected everyday Americans, you know, and there's kind of allusions to that throughout the series. And, you know, Robert goes into that in detail on, on his his thoughts about that and how how the parents 
the damaged parents of Elm Street are kind of the burnouts of that counterculture era in America. Yeah. So well, that's a fascinating take. And tell me, I wanted to ask you as well about Robert England. Is he at peace with Freddie being his most famous role? I mean, is he does does it sit well with him, or is he tired of talking about it? Clearly, he wanted to talk to you about it. No, I think he's entirely at peace with it. I mean, he says it himself that you know Freddie, he is now he is the logo of the the entire franchise, and I think mm. it's partic- particularly so now since Wes has passed on. You know, mm. um, I, he's a great champion and cheerleader for the for the franchise, and he he didn't hesitate in talking to me and gave me a, a wealth of material. But not only that, I mean, he he he, like I say, he's a great storyteller. He loves talking and telling stories of of his days in Hollywood. And even he he heard about the book that I wrote on Burt Reynolds, and he asked me for a copy because he's in the, he's kind of in the book because I talk about him being the first man who ever killed Burt Reynolds in a film in the nineteen nineteen seventy five movie Hustle. So. So he, okay. wanted, he wanted to get a copy of the book and he, he since told me he loved it, which was, you know, pretty surreal for me. Yeah, good to hear. So listen, in, in terms of the movies then, so there was six, then there was Wes Craven's Nightmare, then there was the god-awful Freddy versus Jason. And then in 2010, it had nothing to do really with Wes Craven or, or Robert England. There was a reboot, A Nightmare on Elm Street. So what lives and what dies now, roughly, if you could tell me quickly, if that's not too tall an order? Well, in, in my own opinion, you know, that that remake or, well, reimagining whatever it is in 2010 was absolutely horrendous. It, yeah. it was all all the surface elements, but without any of the charm. You know what I mean? If you look, go back to the first film, it was all physical effects work. This was all... This version was all digital. It had that horrible kind of contemporary, overly digitized, almost cartoonish look to the special effects. I hear you. You know, there was no Robert England. I mean, if it's if if it's not Robert England under that under that hat, you know, yeah, forget about it. But yeah, uh, you know, Freddy's Freddy versus Jason is feels to me just like a kind of a throwaway video game. You know, two yeah two end bosses fighting it out. You know, there's nothing nothing there really beyond it's it's mildly entertaining. It's a popcorn movie. Uh Wes Craven's new nightmare is fantastic. It's kind of a, a proto scream. You know, it was it was self-reflexive. It was kind of looking at the horror genre and the effects that horror has on audiences and on the people who make it. So very in, ingenious storyline and very well pulled off. You know, but I would consider the the, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise for me is one to six, as in that's kind of canon, you know, in terms of the story connecting from one to the other and characters and all that. But um, yeah. So, and in terms of those six movies, which ones would you like urge people to revisit? I know you might say all six, but. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a little biased, you know, but because I, I, I do love them all, but I, I, I think Tree is, it's generally considered a fan favorite, but it is genuinely a, a great film, a standalone film. Chuck Russell made that, and it's um, Wes Craven wrote the story. Uh, Frank Darabont worked on the script, who became, you know, worked with Stephen King and The Walking Dead and all that. So there's some great pedigree there. Beautifully photographed by Roy Wagner. Um, terrific cast. You've Patricia Arquette, Heather Langenkamp returns after being missing from the second one. So I think the third one, you know, I think it is objectively probably the best of them it's it's certainly probably my favorite i love part four because it's just that kind of 80s hyper 80s hyper stylized you know has that great new wave rock and pop soundtrack to kind of support it so it's really it's a it's a product of its time and you, you can't beat the first one i mean it's, yeah. it's it's a wes craven masterpiece but i do I, I i think i love all of the first six with the exception of five five for me is the hardest to kind of to kind of uh, love or embrace on a kind of a you know emotional level 
it's just i think it's lacking some of the it tried to it tried to do something different and fail. It tried to be more gothic and dark and kind of it 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 didn't handle its serious themes as well as some of the others did. Well, listen, if you want to take a deep dive into the Elm Street franchise, I can highly recommend Welcome to Elm Street Inside the Film and Television Nightmares. It's by Wayne Byrne. Wayne, where can people get their hands on it? So it's available now as a pre-order from McFarland Books, which is my publisher, or you can order it from any of the major or indie bookstores that you can get it pretty much anywhere. Um, hopefully on the shelves within the next month or so. We don't have a firm street date, but they just kind of give a general you know, release time period of anywhere between November, December. But you can go into any bookstore at the moment and order it place an order and you can get it and listen you've written a variety of all very different and interesting books and and real film books and serious film books and entertaining film books what's next for you i'm working on a couple of books um i'm under contract now my next book coming out uh after elm street will be one on the great director walter hill so okay. i'm in the middle of interviewing many actors and collaborators and walter himself on that book you know so very exciting and also i'm working on some music books you know another another book hopefully out next year is a book i'm working on with, with one of my best friends and one of my favorite musicians so that's going to be exciting i can't really talk about what it is at the moment oh, but okay more m- more of that and on well listen you've made me want to re-watch certainly the first and third elm street movie so mission accomplished as i say the book is inside the film and television nightmares it's by wayne Byrne. wayne thanks very much very welcome, John. Thanks for having me. creepy clip of kids singing a scary rhyme there from a nightmare on elm street i think the first one and uh, it was great to talk to wayne and he made me want to re-watch those movies uh, we didn't do a favorite movie this week because i kind of wanted to do something horror related but normal service next week that is it for this week my thanks to Marie kane who helped out on the show this week as she does every week and a happy halloween to you Anne marie if you want to get in touch with me at any stage during the week please do so John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio here on Newstalk every Saturday at 6 p.m. Enjoy the rest of this Halloween weekend, and I'll talk to you all next week.